Hey everybody, welcome to the final lecture of the class. Uh, it's day 90 for me, um, and uh, you can see I've added a joker to the board. It doesn't seem like a joke, but it does seem like maybe there's a joker out there doing this to us. Some kind of cosmic joker. Alright, I won't get started on that. Um, today's lecture is, uh, you know, the wrap-up for the course, and this is something that I always like to do on the final lecture of, of a class, is take this whole long 10-week exploration to kind of like, you know, map it out, zoom out, try to try to figure out what has happened, what we've learned, what how it all ties together. Um, and today is the middle of exam week and you're, you're done with the work for the class. And maybe you're not even, well, I would say, maybe you're not even watching this video, but if you're watching this video, you're watching this video. But students may not be, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of this. this. This is essentially an epilogue to the class. Um, so, I'm going to try to keep it relatively brief because I'm not going to just try to review and summarize what the entire class has been about. What I want to do is I want to kind of tie it all together and connect up things and uh, give, us a, give us a perspective on what is it that I've been trying to do with the last 10 weeks of this particular class. Um, I started back in week one with a lecture on political reform versus other types of reform. Um, and I, I realized I probably should have called that political reform versus policy reform because uh, other types of reform is a little vague. Like the difference between reforming the immigration system, that's policy reform, and reforming uh, the electoral system, that's political reform. Today I'm going to do a different comparison. I'm going to compare reform and revolution. Um, and I'm definitely not going to get into a lot of detail, just the sort of the basic schema of what the difference is and uh, why, what, what, what political reform is and what its limitations are. Um, one of the things about a democratic system is that it can be fixed from within, that's political reform, or it can be overthrown. Um, I mean, any political system can be fixed from within or overthrown. But a democratic system actually it makes room in its very nature to internal reform. So a democratic system can be self-healing. That's what reform is. And I say can be because it isn't always. Um, democratic systems often don't heal the problems that people have with them, the way that it falls short of manifesting and living up to its values. Um, and democratic systems can limp along failing to, uh, you know, essentially keep the promises that, that their founding documents make, um, they can then also be overthrown when they don't self-heal, right? Uh, that creates death. Like, you know, it, the death of a democratic system is, 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 a, is a revolution. But one of the interesting things about a democratic system is that it has the potential to be self-healing. Um, autocratic systems have the potential to be self-healing, but it's not built in. It can happen, but it takes a very specific and very rare set of conditions that you essentially have a reformist autocrat. Um, and it's a rare autocrat that actually will um, under, engage in healing of the political system or transformation of the political system without significant external or internal pressure. External from other nations, uh, or internal from uh, social and, and uh, revolutionary movements, coups, uh, uh, dissident movements, uh, popular uprisings. So it, it can happen, uh, but it doesn't, it's not a normal part of it. In the democratic system, 
ref political reform is always an opportunity. Now, one of the things that this means, though, is that in order to reform the democratic system, you have to use the democratic system that exists already to change the democratic system. So, reform, political reform, is using the existing democratic system to improve the system. A revolution overthrows the existing system in order to make an improvement. Now, revolutions both succeed and fail, and historically they largely fail to make the world a better place. Um, <clears throat> for they, they largely fail to actually improve the situation. Um, but that's not a hard and fast rule, and there are, there are revolutions that actually work out. Um, reform has the same problem. Like, sometimes the democratic system can't be improved internally, right? It doesn't heal itself, and it limps along. Other times, there are changes that are made to the way a democracy functions that are uh, created through the democratic system itself that actually either don't improve the system or make the problem worse, or what usually happens is they solve one problem only to create another problem. Um, one example is uh, direct democracy. Uh, direct democracy addresses the problem of a corrupt and unresponsive representative system. Um, and uh, it, can, it can solve that problem, or it can at least mitigate that problem to a certain extent, but it creates new problems. One new problem is that it puts in the hands of people who really aren't policymakers, the people, the ability to make policy. So it gives a tool to an unskilled artisan. Um, another problem that's, that, that it creates is that the processes themselves can be uh, beneficial disproportionately to different groups in society. So one of the things about getting an initiative on the ballot is you need a certain number of signatures. And uh, um, well-funded organizations can much more likely meet the signature threshold than poorly funded uh, um, organizations. And so uh, petitions to, excuse me, ballot measures that uh, have the backing of financially successful individuals or organizations is much more likely to be enacted than a ballot measure that has the support of you know, dedicated good people who don't have a lot of financial resources. And they have to make up for that lack of financial resources by, having, by relying on activist energy and other resources, and it's harder to, to turn those other resources into success than it is to turn money into political success. So that's just one example, and that's not to say that that particular political reform, uh, the, the creation of the initiative and referendum, is a bad one. Um, it's to say that uh, it, most reforms in, of the political system are going to, to have, and this is an, you know, I haven't proven the most reforms, but this is one example, that reforms have the potential to actually fix a problem only, only to, to create other problems. Part of the great thing about the fact that a democracy is a self-healing process is that when you use the democratic system to heal a problem with the democratic system and you create a new problem or you fail to solve the, problem, the original problem, there is still the ongoing possibility of exist, uh, using the existing democratic system to uh, improve it. And so um, 
you can actually like use the system of direct democracy or the system of representative democracy to try to fight against the signature threshold problem that uh, the money problem, or the right, the, the the advantage of money that's created by the signature threshold requirement for a ballot measure. So when when a, when a new either unanticipated problem arises from a from a successful reform, or uh, you know a, a, an anticipated problem, but one that was just kind of like, well, we'll we'll, we'll just deal with that later. When these pro new problems arise, the democratic system is then still there to make ongoing reform. Um, and one of the things, I didn't spend too much time in this class talking about our federal system in the United States, but I have, did mention the concept of laboratories of democracy. One of the things that's great about a federal system is that um, political reform can be carried out at a smaller scale, so it's easier to achieve, and it could also then um, be a kind of a proving ground to determine whether or not there are unforeseen problems with this particular reform and what those problems are and how severe they are and are there ways to mitigate it. So states can experiment with political reforms and other states can watch and learn uh, whether or not that reform is going to have, is going to create more problems than it solves or they can say, well, it created those problems and so we can, we can enact a reform that's going to uh, solve the original problem and mitigate against this new problem arising in such a, a bad way. So that is one of the things that can happen. So like for example, right now, in the world that we live in, um, with a, a pandemic threatening the like the, the ability of people to go vote or, or for there to be a vigorous vote, uh, Oregon, which has had mail-in balloting uh, for uh, over a decade, uh, can be a model. And so people who are worried, like, oh, mail-in voting, it has all these problems in theory, like all these all this potential reviews, all these potential problems. Um, because Oregon has experimented with this for, for well over a decade, uh, the other states that are worried about uh, you know, get, you know, people waiting in line to vote during a global pandemic can say, okay, let's look at Oregon's system and has it created new problems? And if it has, are there ways that we could prevent those problems from arising in our own state by doing our own particular mail-in balloting? And then uh, what that means is that those people who are resisting mail-in balloting by saying, oh, it's this system that's ripe with problems and, and abuse and corruption, the, the uh, proponents of it can point to a specific place, and not just to a theory, they can point to a specific place or places where this has been used, and it has been used without the kind of bumps that the critics or opponents are pointing at it. So, uh, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, for example, if you want to have uh, all mail-in voting in the state of Georgia for the November election, or in the state of uh, Michigan or Pennsylvania, that the proponents of that are going to win that fight because they can point to the Oregon example and say, look, there's not widespread fraud, there's not widespread problems, all these problems that people are, the opponents are bringing up haven't existed in Oregon. And so there's a good chance it's not going to exist in Georgia. It's a good chance it's not going to exist in Pennsylvania. There's no guarantee that something that works well in Oregon is going to be able to be dumped into Pennsylvania between now and November, but there's, there's evidence for it. And that is actually, that's a benefit of a... Uh, of a federal system. A benefit of democracy is that when you use the existing democratic system to improve the democratic system, if you fail to do that, as long as the democratic system itself doesn't crumble, then you can continue using the democratic system. Now, what we've looked at in this class are the four different avenues 
within the existing system to achieving particular reforms. And uh, the, there are obstacles and opportunities at, in, in each of those domains. And I'm definitely not going to do any kind of summary or review because I, I feel like that's been amply covered throughout the course. Um, what I, what I want to talk about is like, why, what, how does reform and revolution compare and why might revolution actually be a necessary step sometimes or a kind of a revolution? Because I have one example in mind. Um, where reforming the system within the system is uh, actually problematic enough that dismantling the system and replacing it with a new system is, uh, one, desirable, and two, being done. Because revolution doesn't have to be a violent transformation of the entire regime. It doesn't. It, that's the paradigm case, that's the, you know, that's the Hollywood celebrity version of revolution. But revolution is... Uh, political revolution is replacing one system with an entirely new system. And the idea being that the old system cannot be improved or cannot be improved sufficiently or can't even be changed so that what you have to do is you have to scrap it and start again. Um, and the example that I have, which is uh, maybe a surprising one, is what the Minneapolis uh, City Council just voted to do. Uh, the Minneapolis City Council just voted to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with a public safety department. And the argument for this is that the police department is beyond reform and that reform efforts have failed, and that reform proposals, given the nature of the, of the, of the structure of the, of the Minneapolis Police Department, are, um, are going to be either impossible to implement, or they're going to fall far short of what needs to be done to improve that system. So they're just dismantling it, and they're going to create a brand new uh, public safety system. Now, one of the things that they're going to do in terms of ideas for creating an entirely new system is they're not going to just make it up from scratch. What you can always do when you have a revolutionary, revolutionary idea, when you want a new system, is the entirely new system can draw on ideas from existing systems. So there are the, the uh, what Minneapolis is going to do is going to look at all kinds of policies that have been enacted by other police departments that have reformed themselves a little bit, by consent decrees that have essentially been judicially enforced upon police departments that have been unable to reform themselves or have engaged in notably bad behavior, systemically uh, long-term bad behavior, and so these consent decrees have been, have been pushed on them. Um, they can also draw on ideas from other countries. They can draw on ideas from uh, reformers that have not necessarily been tested, but that, 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 have, that, are, that are very sound-seeming. Um, so when you create an entirely new system, you're not just making it up from, from thin air. Um, a different example, a related example, is that at the end of World War II, after, uh, the, after Germany and Japan had been uh, conquered and occupied by the Allies, uh, the United States went in and engaged in a political revolution. What they did was they replaced one system, the, the imperial system in Japan and the uh, Nazi system in uh, Germany, with an entirely new system, with a democratic constitution. Uh, neither of those countries 
Well, I shouldn't say either. Germany had had a democratic constitution briefly, and it was just it was poorly done, and it was it was a, it was largely a failure. Japan had never had a democratic constitution, uh, but clearly, what was being replaced was a non-democratic constitution with an with with an entirely new one. The way that those constitutions were written was not just by being like, oh, let's just start from scratch. A hundred and 50 years of work in democratic theory went into writing those constitutions. Uh, it, it, what was great, and those, those countries are very successful, Japan and Germany, and they have amazing political systems that the United States actually gave to them, and they have been modified a little bit over the last uh, 70 years, but not a ton, um, is that the benefits of that 150 years of democratic theory and experience with democracy, right, drawing on ideas from existing systems and from from the works of, of political philosophers, that was the that was something that the uh, delegates to the U.S. Constitutional Convention in 1787 didn't have uh, access to. They had to make it up. I mean, they had some history. There was there was some limited forms of democracy in, in Great Britain, and there was Rome and Greece and some stuff, and you know some 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 uh, uh, medieval city states in in Italy. There were some examples, but there was the, the material was thin, and. They had to create a brand new system essentially from whole cloth, and then they ended up with with weird things like the electoral college, which was based on the college of cardinals that chose the pope. So like they were they, they were really in some cases they were scratching for material to draw on. Um, political revolution doesn't have to be that same thing. The political revolution that the American founding fathers engaged in was way less uh, had way less access had access to way less material. Um, so. As the, as the <clears throat> Minneapolis City Council seeks to create a brand new system, a public safety department that is going to replace the police department. And it may not happen because like this is still, it's, I think they voted to do it, but it could be there are a lot of, like the status quo has weight in the police department. Part of the reason why they voted to dismantle it is because it has enough ability to resist any kind of reform. Um, so there might still be resistance to actually doing the dismantling as well. Um, in a revolution, there are always going to be counter-revolutionary forces. But what the Minneapolis City Council is going to do to replace one system with an entirely new system is look at ideas from a variety of places. Um, this is what was done with the German and Japanese constitutions. It was what was done with the Iraqi and Af Afghan constitutions with less success, but that was, it was a harder situation because Germany and Japan were just fully occupied and had surrendered unconditionally, and neither Iraq nor Afghanistan were actually fully occupied. Like, we won those wars, but they weren't occupied. Like, one, air quotes, won those wars. Um, but revolution says this system that exists can't be fixed just by changing some pieces of it. Or it can be improved, but not enough. We fall, we fall so far short of what is good and necessary that it just has to be dismantled. The old regime has to go away. So political reform is saying the regime is failing to live up to some of the promises that it makes. And we can use the regime itself, the democratic regime itself, to live up to those promises. Um, and uh, when the efforts to do that fall short, we can continue doing that. Or when the efforts to do that actually make things worse, we can fix it and make things better. Um, a political revolution basically says it's unfixable, and so we just have to scrap it and start, uh, start with, a, with, a, with a brand new system, but an entirely new system, but it doesn't have to be uh, like just brand new. It can, it can, this is an important, it draws on ideas.
from existing systems. Now, there are benefits and challenges to both of these uh, approaches to improving the political system. Uh, the benefit of political reform is that um, it, because the changes are, one, done within the system itself, there's an automatic legitimacy to them. Because when you vote through, when a, when a representative system that exists and policies are already being made and, and choices are being made through the representative system, and the representative system produces a, uh, a political reform like uh, campaign finance reform or like direct democracy or like mail-in balloting, then it, 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 that new idea has all the legitimacy of the pre-existing system. So you're not asking people to switch their uh, allegiance from one system to another and thereby actually have to like say, well, that system is illegitimate and this system is legitimate. That's what a revolution is asking for. A revolution is actually asking to say, this system is illegitimate and this new system will have legitimacy. Um, and when things are really bad, when it's clear that a system is illegitimate, revolution is really is the, is the better way. But the benefit of political reform is that there's that automatic legitimacy. Another benefit of political reform, which can, is actually tied to one of the flaws with political reform, is that it can be gradual and you can uh, put something into place, and particularly in a federal system where it can be done in laboratories of democracy at the state level instead of at the national level, it can be put into place and see what comes of it because human beings can often not predict the consequences of the changes that they make. And so you can, instead of changing the entire system, thinking it's going to be better because the old system was so bad and then the new system is worse. And this is the, the, the French Revolution is really the paradigm case of that. Um, there are other revolutions that are equally bad to the French Revolution. Not all revolutions are go that badly. But they, when, when you decide to destroy the entire regime and replace it with something brand new, and in that case also totally untested, and much like the, um, the, the delegates of the U.S. Constitutional Convention, the French revolutionaries were, they were drawing on very, there was very little material. Um, and they wanted to change not just the political system, but the entirety of the social and cultural system all at once. The U.S. revolution was a political revolution. The French revolution was a political, social, cultural revolution and religious revolution all at the same time. Um, so one of the benefits of reform is that it's less dangerous because when you put into place something that is problematic, it doesn't affect the entire political system. It can be contained. And then you can learn from it and go back or improve or make gradual steps. So the gradualism is a benefit. The gradualism of political reform also can be a problem when the system itself is so far from keeping its promises that gradualism is, is, is just not enough or is not perceived as enough. And I think that's probably uh, the thing that's behind the desire and the, now the movement to change, to dismantle the uh, Minneapolis Police Department and replace it with, it with the Public Safety Department is that the system is so problematic that any available reforms are going to fall so far short of what needs to be done at baseline to make the world a better place that uh, reform is, it not only uh, seems like falling short, but it's actually counterproductive, right? <clears throat> and that's when the idea of a revolution, things, things are so bad that <clears throat> they can't be fixed through reform. And, you know, people, the thing is, people will differ on whether, whether things are so bad that they can or cannot be fixed with reform. Um, there were definitely, to, to refer back to the American Revolution, there were definitely plenty of Americans who didn't think 
that the relationship between the colonies and Great Britain uh, was uh, so bad that it needed a revolution. There, there, there were proposals to, and people who were supported, you know, reforming Parliament's relationship. Uh, there, you know, imagine allowing the colonies to elect representatives to, par to Parliament, um, allowing the colonies to have like to have representation, so that it wouldn't be taxation without representation anymore. Um, there, the the loyalists many of whom thought the system was fine as it was, but many of whom thought that the relationship between the colonies and Great Britain was problematic and needed improvement, but didn't think that severing political ties with Great Britain through a, 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 a revolution was necessary. So the difference here, this is a more drastic, obviously, and dra big problems require drastic solutions, but people are going to differ on how big of a problem they think something is. Now, one of the things I think that is, that is interesting about what's been going on over the last couple weeks is that the idea of um, institutional racism and uh, uh, sort of systemic police abuse of colored people is that five years ago, that didn't seem like such a big problem to a lot of people, right? And particularly to white people. Um, and today, it seems like a big problem. Um, I, one survey I read, and this was in all my years of, of seeing uh, trends in public opinion, I've never seen anything like this, um, is that uh, as of last week, 74% of Americans, this is a Gallup poll, 74% of Americans believe that police brutality is tied to institutional racism, not isolated incidents, right? That George Floyd's uh, death is part of a system of, of uh, racist power system, not an isolated incident uh, created by some uh, a few bad cops. Five years ago, 34% uh, of Americans answered uh, that survey question uh, that way, and the rest felt either they didn't know or they felt that uh, incidents of, of police violence against uh, African Americans were, were isolated incidents associated with bad cops. Right? Uh, that's a tr that's a profound transformation in public perception of the nature of the problem and. What, when, when you have only a third of, of people thinking that something is institutional racism and not isolated incidents, the problem from the point of view of elected officials doesn't seem so bad that it requires a, a, a big solutions. It, 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 it needs re reform, and then reform itself, one of the other problems with reform, is that reform can easily be watered down so much or delayed so much that it essentially doesn't make any change at all. This is one of the things that happens, is people get outraged, the uh, uh, elected officials or people who are running for office make promises that they're gonna change things and they, they get into office and they drag their feet or they realize it's harder to do than they thought or they give up on it, whatever, whatever it happens. Or the outrage dissipates enough that those people who got elected to make change no longer feel like they're uh, um, gonna be held to that uh, particular promise and so they go and, and, and do other things. When the problem is so big, when three quarters of Americans acknowledge at this moment, and who knows, like there'll, there'll be slippage in this. In it, you know, in six months, uh, there will be slippage from that seventy-four percent mark. That's that that's almost always what happens, right? After a school shooting, the percentage of Americans that think that we need common sense gun control always goes up, but it's never gone up from thirty-four to seventy-four percent. And even if there's serious slippage, even if, even if there's slippage from 74% to 54%, which would be serious slippage, there's still going to be a, major, a strong majority of Americans who think that police brutality is a result of institutional racism. And that means that the perception of the problem is that it's big, 
and that we may actually need more than just gradual reforms. We may need contained revolutions. And the reason I use the, uh, the, the Minneapolis uh, Police Department, Public Safety Department, as an example of, of political revolution is to point out to you that political revolution doesn't have to change the entire regime in order to be a revolution. You can have a revolution within a broader system. And so revolution can, can actually uh, achieve what reform is by, uh, you know, so when this, what I will call, and this is potentially controversial calling this, but what I will call a revolution in Minneapolis, um, others could say, well, that's just reform. But I'm taking seriously that the city council said, we have to dismantle the police system, because the, the police department, because we can't reform it. It's too resistant to reform. So they are re replacing one system with, an, with another one. Whether people want to call that a revolution or not, in the sort of technical sense in which I'm distinguishing between reform and revolution, in my opinion, that is a revolution. Um, when a, uh, when uh, a revolution occurs within the broader context of a democratic system, it is actually then both reform and revolution. So really more, I would say more accurately, what is going on in Minneapolis is a political reform uh, that is achieving a political revolution. So it's the democratic system itself is changing the police system in Minneapolis. Um, but that change to the police department, that dismantling of one system and creating another one, is coming from the outside, right? It's not coming from the inside. The police department is not being reformed internally. It's being dismantled. It's being dismantled by a democratic power, but that revolution, revolutions can be achieved by democratic systems. And I'll go back to the Japan and Germany examples. Those were political revolutions that were implemented by democratic systems. The United States and its allies, all democratic powers, wrote and uh, implemented, put in place those, uh, those political revolutions. So democratic systems, they can be self-healing, and they can also be other healing. They can be used to heal other, uh, other systems that are broken. Now, revolution has, you know, if we want to talk about the benefits and the problems, it's really just the sort of the, the, the obverse of the benefits and problems of reform, and I've already mentioned them. One, I would say that one of the biggest problems with a revolution of any kind, uh, uh, and the larger scale it is, the bigger this problem becomes, is the legitimacy problem, right? Um, unless the old regime was so illegitimate that any new contender is going to have automatic legitimacy, that a new system is going to struggle at first to seem legitimate, right? And this goes for anything that's new, right? It's always going to struggle to get that kind of acceptance and legitimacy. Like, you're the new kid in school, right? To get accepted is, like, imagine that you're like, you, you, you're, you're a star football player, and you're smart, and you're kind, and you're just like the perfect person, and you move to a different school, right? You're the new kid. You're still going to have a struggle to get accepted. Um, and people are, you know, you, you'd be like, well, but here's this, here, he's a star quarterback, he's nice, he's smart, he, all this stuff. But then certain people would be like, well, who the hell do you think you are coming into our school and thinking you can become a star quarterback? Who are you? Like, that problem, that very high school problem, it, you know, is, is a legitimacy problem that speaks to political systems as well. Legitimacy is a hard thing to gain. And when we're talking about a new kid in school, gaining acceptance, gaining legitimacy is, like, it... It's not that problematic. When we're talking about replacing one system with an entirely new system, to the extent that the new system doesn't have its sea legs of legitimacy yet, that system is vulnerable to yet another revolution. 
um, that system is also not going to be ready to engage in political reform very quickly because you create a new system and then you quickly realize like, oh no, we have to change some things, we have to fix some things. That's, that, that's actually admitting that your new plan was flawed from the beginning. And if you admit that too early, that is also going to curtail uh, legitimacy. So political reform brings with it legitimacy. When it's done within a democratic system, it brings with it legitimacy, even when it's problematic. Right? Even when you create a political reform that creates more problems than it solves, it still has the legitimacy because it was essentially a policy mistake. Right? When you pass a law that has, uh, like you pass a law to improve the economy and it actually makes the economy worse, that law still has legitimacy. And, and, and because the democratic system allows the updating of that law, you can be like, oh no, we made a huge mistake, we've got to fix that. Uh, we got to fix that. We wanted that to improve the economy, and it didn't, so we better change it. Now, it, it, easier said than done, right, because in any democratic system, there are all kinds of obstacles. Even when you, if you pass a new, create a new policy, and it's disastrous, it still is now the status quo, and it can resist change. The status quo can always resist change. Um, and that's where the discussion throughout this class of, like, the various obstacles to different avenues of reform come, in, come into play. If you create... Like, you create a direct democratic system that is then like, oh no, the people weren't ready to make policy for themselves, and they're making disastrous policies, and money is winning all the time. We gotta, we gotta get rid of this. It's actually, even though it's theoretically possible to do that, it's harder. It's harder to backtrack. It's one of the reasons why people with a conservative mindset recommend being very cautious about reforms of all kinds, is because reforms are difficult to undo quickly. Um, revolutions are vulnerable early, and you know, in the history of revolutions, one of the things that happens is there are counter-revolutions successfully, there's regime collapse, there's also that the new, the, the new system, because it wasn't well thought through, is worse than the old system, right? It's argued about whether the French Revolution was worse than the ancient regime, but it was pretty bad. Um, and so maybe they were both equally just terrible. But the, the revolution brings with it the problem of legitimacy. One of the things I think that's going to go on in Minneapolis in this small contained political revolution of creating a public safety department is this is going to be done with transparency and with real openness and with really, like, with integrity, with an eye on, one, doing a good job of it, but two, making sure that the new system has legitimacy, like, from the beginning. Because uh, if you're going to create a public safety department, you're going to get rid of the police, who do an important job, and even if they're doing a terrible job at that important job, and even if they're doing a totally unfair racist version of that job, like you can't not have some public safety force. So if the new system doesn't have legitimacy right away, if a lot of people in Minneapolis-St. Paul look at the public safety department like, they don't know what they're doing, and this is poorly put together, and I don't feel safe, that's going to be highly problematic. So the legitimacy problem exists there in that particular case. The more widespread your revolution is, the more the legitimacy problem grows, right? So when you replace an entire state government with a new type of state government, when you, when you replace an entire national government with a new type of government, um, the, there, there's that legitimacy problem. Um, and one of the things that uh, is always fragile about a revolution is getting over that period. Right? The first generation of American politics, the, you know, the, the, the early Republican period, that was uh, the, the, the revolutionaries, who were then the founding fathers, who were then the first politicians, like, they were all aware of just how fragile this experiment was because uh, regime change is, is, is just a fragile thing. So that's actually you know, one of the benefits of reform 
And then, as I say, it's tied to the, down, the, the detriment, which is that reform can be too gradualist. So there's no right answer, right? Part of it is, like, how big is the problem? If it's a relatively contained problem, reform is a great way to go. If it's a huge problem, a revolution might be necessary. And then, of course, people are always going to differ. Do we need a revolution or not? Right? Like Bernie Sanders was calling for a political revolution, and there were plenty of people who were, just, who were like, we don't need a political revolution. We, what we need is we just need to keep improving within the system we have. Other people were just like, uh, we, don't need a, we don't need your political revolution. We need a revolution, but not your version. Right? Uh, yes, things are bad enough that we need wholesale change, but I don't like your version of wholesale change. I want this version of wholesale change. Um, so, so that is actually, th th there are two things that can happen when there are calls for revolution. Some people might not think it's bad enough to need a revolution, and then other people might agree that it's bad enough, but then they disagree on what kind of revolution. That's true for political reform as well, and one of the tasks of, uh, of achieving a political reform is building a coalition around a particular solution so that the, um, the reformers don't essentially uh, you know, engage in friendly fire and kill each other off before they can any of them can have a goal. All right, well, I think that brings things together, at least to, to my satisfaction for this class. Um, I really want to thank everybody for participating in this experiment, talking about an experiment in remote instruction that was just dropped uh, at all of our feet. It was dropped at your professor's feet. It was dropped at your feet. And not only was it challenging, it became more challenging as, uh, um, as, this, uh, as, as the uh, racial unrest, as civil strife, as protests. And, like, it's, become more distracting and more difficult. So I really appreciate it. I just want everybody to know that I really appreciate however much you have struggled. I appreciate your struggle. Um, and I, I just want to say as one last word, I've been getting emails from a lot of students and uh, a, a lot of people are expressing regret and sorrow that they haven't lived up to their own academic standards, uh, that, that, that things have been hard and they haven't turned in their papers, they haven't done their best work, they haven't been able to follow along. I just want to tell you that one, I understand where, why that would be, and two, I want you to practice self-compassion. I want you to go easy on yourself because it's completely understandable. I understand. Um, I myself had to struggle with like I my standards for what a college class is going to be. I, I I couldn't I couldn't uphold those educational standards to their fullest extent, and I've had to actually really be compassionate with myself and not beat myself up about that. So I, I want to end this lecture by uh, like asking you to make sure that you're compassionate with yourself about the, your, like, the struggles you've had and if you've fallen short of your usual academic standards for yourself. Like, it's great to notice that. And you know, like, that kind of honesty is really, really fantastic. Um, but also just like, don't beat yourself up about that. Please do not beat yourself up. All right, well, that's the end of the class. And uh, possibly I will, air quote, see some of you this summer. I'm teaching an online class, which would have been online anyway. And I'm teaching a remote class, which would have been live, but is now going to be remote. Um, and uh, I'm going to like, find ways that we can actually make the seeing more than just air quotes. I'm not going to duplicate the model that I used this term. Um, I'm going to try to learn from my experience and have now I have, I think, six weeks to set up my next class, maybe five weeks. That's much more time than two weeks uh, to, to pivot into a remote instruction model. So maybe I'll see some of you there. If not, uh, many of you are graduating. Congratulations. Uh, and also, I'm sorry that, that this is the conditions that, under which you're graduating. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's been my pleasure to, to teach you, even though I've never seen any of you guys face to face. All right. That's it. Bye.